You are listening to The Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And my name is Todd Pruitt, uh, with you as always with Carl Truman. Uh, I'm pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Carl is the pastor of Cornerstone Presbyterian Church in Ambler, Pennsylvania. He also teaches church history at Westminster Theological Seminary. And we are really uh, glad that you have joined us on yet another edition of Mortification of Spin. And in keeping with uh, something that we like to do, we like to have people on this podcast that we like. We like reading their stuff. We like the way they speak. We like the things they have to say. And that keeps us from really having to give them a, a very hard time, but rather we can just kind of give them a standard hard time. And uh, Carl's going to talk about who the uh, the victim is today. Yeah, we're very privileged today to have uh, someone who is great writer, uh, a, a, a stalwart of his local church and a, a great church leader, uh, and also in his spare time is associate professor of biblical studies and ethics at Boyce College in Louisville, Kentucky, which is part of uh, the Southern Baptist Seminary, and that is uh, Denny Burke. Welcome to the show, Denny. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you here. We want to talk to you about your new book, but first of all, I, I have to say something to you. I know about 12 months ago, you, you actually dedicated a, an editorial in the Journal of Biblical Manhood and Woman to, to, to criticizing me. And <laughs> I have to say that was probably one of the more hurtful <laughs> periods in my journey. Uh, <laughs> no, I have to say, I always wear such things as a badge of honor, so it was kind of fun that, uh, that I'd obviously irritated you enough to, to, to pop up on your, your uh, radar at that point. You should view it all as an expression of love. <laughs> well, Denny, I do want to say that you're in a long line of honorable men who have had to publicly criticize Carl, so I commend you for that. That's a great cloud of witnesses. <laughs> Well, the main reason for having you on today, Denny, I mean, there's a lot of things we could talk about because uh, your blog, which if if listeners have not visited, you should visit Denny Burke's blog. Yes. Your blog is devoted to commenting really on the, the interface of religion, theology, culture, politics. It is a fascinating and polymathic contribution to contemporary evangelical it life. It is, and it's dedicated to Louisiana football, too. Yeah, that's right. Uh, LSU. <laughs> Into, into, it's it's an American sport, Carl. We'll we'll introduce it to you sometime. I suppose yeah. on every parade, a little rain must fall. <laughs> uh, I was I remember watching just as an aside, watching uh, an American football game with my father uh, one Thanksgiving, and uh, at the end of it, I switched off, and and my dad turned to me and he said, you know. Americans are very easily satisfied with their sports, aren't they? <laughs> and I never watched another game. <laughs> but anyway, talking about culture, one of the, the hallmarks of, of contemporary culture is our obsession with, with sex. You see it everywhere from advertising to, to the, the ready availability of pornography to the redefinition of marriage. I remember when I was at college, uh, one of my college lecturers said, uh, made the comment about the difference between the Victorian age and, and the modern age. And this was, this was 30 years ago now. But he said in the Victorian age, uh, they, were, they talked about death all the time, but were really obsessed with sex. Uh, I think we're almost in the opposite situation today, that death is, is completely absent from our society, but all we talk about all the time is sex. And it has to be said that, that good Christian books 
on sexual ethics are becoming few and far between. So it's a great pleasure to have Denny on the program today because Denny has a book coming out from Crossway in just a few weeks uh, entitled, What is the Meaning of Sex? Uh, Denny, I wonder if you'd like to talk to us, tell us why you wrote the book and what the basic thesis or theses of the book are. Well, the basic thesis is indicated in the title. I'm trying to ask and answer the question, what's the meaning of sex? And so at the bottom line is this, I'm trying to figure out what's the purpose of sex. And so it's a teleological approach to sexual ethics. And what I'm, what I'm saying is, is that if you're going to understand sexual morality, you have to understand why it is God gave us the gift of sexuality to begin with. And so if you don't, if you can't answer that question, if you can't answer why God created male and female to come together in a conjugal union of marriage, if you can't answer that question, then you can't a- answer really any ethical question that pertains to sex. And so, um, what is the meaning of sex? I argue its ultimate meaning is the glory of God. Now, there are some other penultimate purposes that are there, but the ultimate meaning is the glory of God. And so all sexual morality has to be measured by its ability to achieve that end. And anything that falls short of that is falling short of the glory of God, which the Bible defines as sin. So that's sort of my overall overarching theme and argument that I'm making as I unpack it through various practical issues throughout the chapters. That's uh, it's very interesting, Denny. Now, about, uh, I guess it, it's a year, 18 months, maybe two years ago, uh, Mark Driscoll uh, published uh, a book on sex. I think it was entitled uh, Real Marriage, The Truth About Sex and Friendship, or something like that. Um, that raised in my mind uh, a number of issues, and one of them sort of came up this way, and that the, the Westminster Bookstore was thinking about stocking it, doing a big promotion on it. And I think I read your review of that book. And when the manager of the bookstore got in touch with me and said, okay, you're a, you're a senior faculty member, what do you think about us stocking this? Uh, my typical reaction whenever I'm asked questions like that is always to talk to my wife. She's a very wise person. She has, uh, it's hard to believe that she's more sensitive than I am, I know, because <laughs> I'm a very sensitive guy. But she's a sensitive nature. She, she's got a lot of wisdom on that front. For the first time in my professional life, I think I was asked a question that I didn't feel able to talk to my wife about for advice because having read your review, there were things in that book that I just didn't want to, I I didn't feel my wife needed to know about, if I could put it that way. Uh, And that raised for me the the difficult question uh, as, as as a theologian and as a pastor. We always have to tread that fine line between approaching the subject of sex, which is a very important one, in a thoroughly frank and biblical and honest way. But we also, I think, have to be careful that we don't cross the line into prurience or into giving people information that they don't need to have. Um, What sort of approach did you take in your book on on what one might call, I suppose, the, the discretion question? Yeah, you know, it's always fascinating to me that Certain pastors and certain authors, um, not just Mark Driscoll, but a lot of folks, when they'll, they'll, they'll approach books in the Bible like the Song of Solomon, which is basically a book of the Bible celebrating the joys of conjugal union within marriage, 
And they'll look at that and they'll view it as a kind of permission slip to speak just as salaciously about sexuality as the rest of the culture does. And I think that that's the wrong approach to take. I don't think that that's um, an implication of those biblical books. And when, if you look at a book like the Song of Solomon, for instance, yes, it's celebrating the joys of marital life, but it does so in poetry. It does so in, in veiled uh, symbolism. It's never speaking explicitly and fallaciously. Um, it's always measured. And so, so I read those books. I don't see them as a permission slip to be salacious. I see them as giving us a guideline of how we ought to use um, discretion and a little more indirection mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to speaking about these things in certain contexts. Okay. So my approach in this in this book is not. I've, I've tried not to be salacious. I've tried to, um, um, to 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 be discreet, but to speak directly about the, the presenting issues, and uh, and that's the way that that, that I've approached it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I've been confounded by the justification for speaking really um, graphically, um, pastors speaking really graphically about sex, and they justify it by appealing to the Song of Solomon, um, which, as you said, speaks in very carefully veiled and poetic language. And then you have a preacher get up and basically say, okay, now when he uses this image, you know what he's talking about? And he, and he goes yeah, into the graphic right. language. Um, so I, that's always confounded me. Um, let me ask you this. You're, you're a dad. How many kids do you have? I have four children. Four kids. And how old is your oldest? Seven. Seven. So when the time comes for you to begin to talk to your kids about this subject, how do you think you'll go about doing that? Or, or what counsel would you give to parents who have kids getting into an age where they need to begin to address the issue of sexuality with them? What, what's your counsel on that? Or what are your plans as a father for that with your own kids? Well, my plans are is to be paying attention to what their exposure is on the outside because I want to reach them first. Mm. So I want to, I want to have the first conversation with my children about these things. Now I know that it's, it's difficult and sometimes uh, you can't control things, but it, it made a huge difference to me in my life that my father was the one who explained the birds and the bees. Mm. <laughs> and for the rest of my life, that was when I was nine years old. For the rest of my life after that, he was my resource growing up. He was the one I felt I could go to and to ask questions to if I needed to have someone that was trustworthy, who loved me, and who was going to give it to me from a Christian perspective. Mm -hmm. So I, I, don't, I don't know that I want to do anything very different than what my father did, which was to speak frankly and to speak early mm -hmm. and in a way that was trustworthy and compelling. So now I do think it's a different day that we're growing up in and that uh, the children are, are, are growing up in and they're facing all kinds of challenges and they're being sexualized so much earlier. And so it's all the more important for parents to know what they believe and to be able to articulate that in appropriate ways to their children. So, which is a part of the, of the reason that I wrote this book. I just feel like Christians are sort of behind on some of the issues and in many ways have sort of imbibed the spirit of the age, which has been so shaped by the sexual revolution. And I'm, I want to bring us back to more biblical categories 
and which is going to transform hopefully all of our lives, but even in particular areas like this when it comes to speaking to children. I think that's a very interesting comment you made about your father there, Denny. In my limited pastoral experience, uh, I found uh, a disproportionate number of pastoral problems arise among young men who had absent fathers. Right. Don't want to completely psychologize it. No human father is perfect, of course. But it does seem to me that fathers play an extraordinarily powerful role, for good or for ill, uh, in their children as, as they're growing Amen. up. Um, I also think that to sort of broaden the, the discussion, as you were talking there about uh, the need to educate our children, I think that a lot of Christians, uh, I'm going to use the George Bush phrase, misunderestimate. Would you believe I was actually going to use <laughs> yeah. that Good word. for you, Carl. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> Underestimate. I'll quote uh, Rachel Maddow later. <laughs> You'll lose us a lot of donors just, if you do that, please I'm sure. you. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of Christians underestimate how the culture teaches sexual ethics. I've said I say this repeatedly in the pulpit on a Sunday. Every time you see you know, explicit sex and violence are actually relatively easy to avoid. They're like the lunatic in the ski mask with a chainsaw walking down your street. You see them a mile off, you get inside, you lock your door, you phone the police. If you're in your house and carbon monoxide is creeping in, you don't realize it's killing you until it's too late. Every right. commercial you see, every sitcom you see, every soap opera you see, every billboard you see these days seems to me to be saturated in explicit, well, not uh, explicit images that are sexual, if I could put it that way, rather than explicit sexual images, uh, and soaked in a particular philosophy, uh, a, a sentimentalization of human relations, a reduction of human relations to, if you like, sex as the starting point rather than sex as the, as the crowning glory of human relationships. Uh, you, you're a pastor too, I think, Denny. You, you, you're involved in very much in a local church. What sort of strategy would you recommend to, to pastors out there? You know, a pastor gets people for an hour. Maybe if there are two services, he gets them for two hours. Maybe if you're a Capitol Hill Baptist, you get them for four hours <laughs> on a Sunday. But you have a very short period of time compared to the time that the world has to educate sexually. How can a pastor... Uh, teach proper sexual ethics, given the the broad sweep of people he's speaking to, and also the the narrow amount of time that he has to do it in. Well, I think it's appropriate for pastors to set aside time to do special series and emphases on these topics. But really, Carl, it, it, the main thing that pastors need to do is preach the Bible. Hmm. They have to be preaching expositionally through the Scripture. Any pastor who's preaching expositionally through the Scripture is going to have to talk about these issues, because this is not just about one or two verses in the Bible. This is written, sexual morality, what it means to be created in God's image as male and female, is embedded throughout all of Scripture. And so these issues pastors are going to be facing as they're expositing the Scripture. And what I find with a lot of pastors is that you can... You can easily avoid hot-button issues if you're not being disciplined by the Bible in terms of what you preach on. If, if the Bible's not setting your agenda, then you can skip around all those things that are the hot-button issues and that you may experience some pushback upon. 
So I, I'm just saying that you know I can't preach through the pastoral epistles without talking about sexual morality. I can't t- preach through the book of Romans without talking about sexual morality. I can't preach through Genesis. I mean, you just go through the scriptures, and you're, you're going to have to talk about it if you're allowing um, the scripture to set the agenda. So expositional preaching, in my view, is all important, and it's one of the great needs that we have today in our pulpits because you allow the Scripture to set the agenda for you. That's good. And I, and I believe where the, um, you know, the Scripture says that He's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. I believe that, and I believe that the Scripture is sufficient for these things. And pastors are going to demonstrate whether or not they believe that in how they preach. And so the regular expositional uh, setting forth of Scripture, I think, is a is an absolute fundamental starting point. And if you're doing that, you're going to have to address the interface between what the Scripture says and sexual morality. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Yeah, the regular preaching of the Word is uh, absolutely vital. Uh, one it's, of the not thing... assumed, it's, not a, it's not assumed today, because there, there's yeah. so many people who stand up and talk, but they're not really preaching right. yeah, the yeah. Bible. Yeah. So... Uh, that's why I emphasize it. And it's one of the things I like about your book, Denny. There's a lot of biblical exposition. There's ethical discussion. There's the systematic theology there. It's important that pastors understand that there is a huge generational shift that has taken place. Those of us in our maybe late 30s, 40s, 50s, uh, we grew up at a time when a lot of what we might describe as biblical sexual norms were still honored to some extent. Uh, my parents, for example, were not Christians, but homosexuality was anathema to them. It was just the society they'd grown up in. Uh, the, the world I grew up in really in the 70s and 80s, well, you know, homosexuality was still something. It was, it was becoming more acceptable. We weren't imprisoning homosexuals anymore at that point. But it was still something that we all instinctively knew was, was wrong. What I've noticed with my kids is they... they both of my boys, as far as I know, hold the biblical position on homosexuality, but they do not have the luxury of, of depending on what one might call perhaps the prejudices of the culture to sustain that. They need good, solid arguments to hold the line on this issue. And one of the excellent things about your book is you know, I could give it to my sons and, and say, you know, boys, you read this and, and, and Professor Burke gives you the biblical position. He interacts thoughtfully and intelligently with critics of the biblical position. And as I say, I think pastors, particularly pastors of my age and older, need to understand it isn't enough just to assume that people hold the biblical line on premarital sex or on homosexuality. Uh, We have to address those issues at some point head on. And we have to provide good arguments. We can't do the old consent of the nations. Everybody believes this anymore because almost nobody believes the biblical position uh, anymore. Yeah, and I'm surprised how much in public square arguments, people who are arguing in favor of the normalization of homosexuality will often argue from a biblical position. Mm. So it's not as if people are irreligious in their advancing of of an agenda that's contrary to the Bible, they'll often employ the Bible in their arguments. And so I think it's important for Christians, they've got to know their Bibles. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they've got to know what it's actually speaking so they can recognize the counterfeits that are out there um, speaking against it. I just saw a, a, a video on the Internet yesterday 
it's a viral video going around now. University of North Carolina student uh, performing the spoken word poetry at a, a popular forum, and he's arguing from scripture that God is gay, mm, and okay. he's making his argument, and you can hear these uh, what sound like a, a crowd of college students just cheering him on yeah. as he employs the Bible to argue that, that God is gay, and so I think we've got to understand what the Bible is saying so that we can make a case and have our consciences held captive to, to the truth. Yeah, and I think part of that, of course, is a, is a part of the ideological shift has been love has has been become to be sentimentalized. So love is whatever makes me feel good, and also love has come to be identified almost exclusively in some ways uh, with sex. I was reading uh, a book recently on Cardinal Newman, who has a very close uh, friendship with uh, a, a priest, Ambrose St. John. And it's very interesting that this relationship between Newman and Ambrose St. John has been played up as a gay relationship by some uh, modern writers, completely missing the point that in the 19th century, it was actually possible for men to have deep, emotional loving friendships that were not sexual in any way whatsoever. But we don't even seem to have the vocabulary to be able to express that these days. And that is is very damaging, Mm -hmm. ultimately, to to our ability to to preach the gospel because God's love lies at the heart of the gospel. And I can understand, without having heard that poem, I can understand how that person makes this perverse connection between God and gayness, Mm -hmm. given the way the language itself has become perverted. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I would ask both of you men, I would ask you, um, given the fact what what both of you have spoken to, the fact that we're raising a generation um, that has no memory, really no cultural memory where homosexuality has been considered even by the culture as something that is wrong and sinful. Um, What do you what do you men see coming down the pike with this generation and, and the following generations? in regard to um, being able to hold the line and maintain uh, a commitment to biblical sexual ethics, particularly in in this discussion of homosexuality. And as a part of that also then, uh, are we going to see a rise in the number of young men who struggle with homosexuality because at, at very formative periods in their life, they encounter a great deal of sexual confusion, if that question makes sense to you? Do you want to take that, Danny? Yeah, sure. Uh, then I'd love to hear what you have to say, too. Um, I think it's fascinating because as a culture, I think we've sowed to the wind and we're now mm-hmm. reaping the whirlwind. And so things that, when the sexual revolution really began, things that the seeds that were sown then have now, they're coming to full bloom. Mm-hmm. And the extent to which the church has been complicit in facilitating this um, that's coming to full bloom. Hmm. But, uh, you know, our culture, really, think about it. There's only two rules on sexual morality today. It is, um, it can't hurt anybody, and it has to happen between consenting adults. So as long as nobody's getting hurt, and as long as it's not, you know, involving a, a child, apparently, um, our culture really doesn't know any other taboos right. that I can think of. And so... Um, and really, I think I think we're naive to think that those taboos will always stand. Um, yeah. Former generations thought there were other taboos that existed. One of them was homosexuality. That has fallen away. I, 
I, I don't know why we would think that those taboos would be eternal and unchanging things, but right now that's all that we have. And when you think about um, what this emerging generation is facing, emerging generation of Christians is facing, they're facing a situation in which if you propose any other kind of sexual restraint besides, um, you know, it doesn't hurt anybody and everybody has to be of age. If you propose any other restraint, you're considered a puritanical bigot. <laughs> right, right. And so we're growing into a, a prophetic minority right now as Christians. And so we're going to have to be willing to do a couple of things. We're going to have to be willing to speak the truth in love and then take our lumps. Mm. Um, yeah. We're yeah. going to have to be able to love people enough to say, look, this is what the truth of God is. This is what promotes human flourishing. This is what God has called us to as human beings. Speak the truth in love. Speak the gospel. And then say, let the chips fall where they may. And it may get difficult for us in coming days. Yeah. It may be more and more difficult for us to, particip- to participate in the public space right. because of these things. But that's that's our vocation, right? Yeah. And that's what Jesus has called us to. So speaking the truth in love and just be willing to take our lumps in the midst of that and to do that as joyful, happy warriors for the truth. Hmm. That's good. Yeah, I think from a human perspective, it's, it's possible to be very pessimistic at this point because, uh, I mean, I think when you look at the writings of somebody like Peter Singer, the professor hmm. of ethics at Princeton University, the Ivy League professor of uh, ethics, advocating you know, sexual activities that I won't mention yeah. on the podcast because, believe it or not, even we have some kind of limits <laughs> to taste. But Singer goes well beyond even the, the, the principle of consent between, between adults. Right. Uh, right. The, the question, I suppose, in my mind is, I think there are, two, there are two things that give me some optimism. One of them is eschatological optimism. Matthew 16, 18, we know who wins. The church is going to win. So even as as society collapses around us, even as we face in some ways, perhaps in America, our Augustine moment, as Augustine gets the news that Rome has fallen to the Goths, even as as the earthly city collapses, we know that the heavenly city is is fundamentally untouched by that. Uh, The Lord has risen. The victory is already secured. Uh, the other side of it, just practically for me, is I wonder how sustainable any form of social life is when, for example, you have uh, law courts having to decide uh, which uh, which toilets uh, five-year-old transgender people use. Part of me thinks that sometimes societies do commit suicide. Yeah. Sometimes they pull back from the brink, not for ethical reasons, but purely pragmatic reasons. So for me... I, I think I'm. I basically agree with with Denny's pessimistic take uh, in terms of of the the earthly narrative. Though I think that maybe somebody at some point will say this is madness and and turn the boat around just slightly enough for us to be able to maintain some kind of social cohesion. Anyway, this has been. Uh, Great uh, to have you uh, on the program, uh, Denny. I do want to commend your book to our listeners. Probably by the time this podcast comes out, the book will be uh, published. It's entitled What is the Meaning of Sex by Denny Burke, a professor, uh, Associate Professor of Biblical Studies and Ethics at Boyce College uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, this has been uh, The Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, and do remember that next time you want a casual conversation about something that counts, we're the people to come to. Thanks for joining us.